Hey everyone, Dan Keeler here, founder of Frontier Markets News, bringing you more fascinating insights about the trends and stories unfolding outside your personal echo chamber. So, we heard in our last podcast how impact investors, including developing world markets, are looking for ways to use blockchain and cryptocurrencies to affect positive change in underserved markets. In this episode, we explore how the NGO Mercy Corps, through its impact investing arm Mercy Corps Ventures, is using cryptocurrency and blockchain tech not just to speed up and fine-tune disaster relief, but also to enable and support development in frontier and emerging markets. As many of you know, as well as being passionate about frontier markets and impact investing, I'm also fascinated by cryptocurrencies and digital assets and blockchain generally, partly because of the transformative potential they have, especially in smaller emerging markets. So you can imagine how excited I am to be joined by Ken Koo, the fintech and innovation lead at Mercy Corps Ventures, so we can talk about the projects the nonprofit's working on, the lessons they're learning about the power of blockchain-based and decentralized technologies, and how crypto might already be upending the delivery of essential relief in response to, or even in anticipation of, disasters. So Ken, it's uh, great to have you in the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, we're going to be talking about Web3 today, which is a topic that um, there, there are many different definitions for this, and a lot of people are uh, not entirely clear on what it means. So if we could just kick off by um, hearing a little about how Mercy Corps got into doing work in Web3 and what you view Web3 as, like what is your definition of Web3? Sure. So I'm part of Mercy Corps Ventures, which is the impact investment arm of Mercy Corps, the international NGO. and Quite a few years ago, we saw that there's an opportunity, um, let's say the valley of death for capital for entrepreneurs who are trying to work in emerging markets and do something impactful, but they weren't attracting venture funding, venture capital. And so that's the genesis behind why Mercy Corps Ventures was, fu- was founded. As we've evolved around that, we'd, we'd started with fintech and now we're doing a lot more on the climate side as well. And then I think as we were exploring different fintech areas, uh, something that kept on popping up, and this would have been, let's say, mid-2010, so maybe 2015, 2016, uh, was the role of Bitcoin in this whole ecosystem. Bitcoin is a way to send money, um, permissionless, trustless uh, flow of funds to emerging markets, which you know typically remittances. You're looking at global average remittance uh, fees around 6%, and obviously it's going to be even higher for smaller transactions. And so I think just understanding the opportunity that something like Bitcoin presented, um, especially when we had to deal with sending money to team members or or interns in emerging markets, like this was just obviously a very clear solution to a pain point that many people were feeling. And so I think that kind of opened the rabbit hole towards how we were how we were exploring cryptocurrencies. Um, and then with respect to just I guess broader Web three. Um, you know, we've been spending the past few years testing out real-world use cases for crypto. Um, and the reason why we're doing this is because there is such a big hype gap around how, um, like, what crypto can be and what it actually is, especially with respect to uh, underserved users in these markets, um, in the frontier emerging markets that we do all of our work in. Uh, you have uh, this this concept, this idea that, this is going to increase financial inclusion, that this is going to be, um, it's going to give people an inflation hedge. It's going to give people borderless money. But in practice, obviously, like most of the attention in the crypto world or the Web3 world has not gone towards that. Um, And so we viewed this as an opportunity to uh, launch some real world responsible use cases and really figure out where does this technology have legs and where does it make sense for it to be 
uh, deployed or implemented in what context and what use cases. Yeah, that's interesting. So are you initiating the projects or are you helping to fund projects that exist already? So it's been um, a mix of both. Um, so my role, I, I lead the Mercy Corps Venture Lab. And so what we do is we've been running a series of pilots with different startups uh, around testing out a specific use case. You know, we'll set up learning questions, we'll define the core impact KPIs that we want to be tracking, and we'll set up um, project-related milestones to ensure that we're following along this. And in terms of that design or creation perspective, it's it's a lot of it's often co-created with our startup partners. So, you know, if we have a concept that we find very interesting that we want to be um, exploring, then we'll we'll talk to some partners, see who's relevant, see who's got the capacity or technological abilities to actually implement that. And then vice versa as well. We do, uh, we've done a few open call for proposals. So we've been running the Crypto for Good Fund for the past two years, where anyone uh, in the ecosystem who's building a crypto solution in an emerging market can apply. Uh, and so last year, the first iteration, we got 180 applicants. Uh, and then this year, we got 200 applicants uh, from 50 different countries around the world. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that a bit later on. Um, but I'd like to sort of dig into the general sort of use cases for crypto and for blockchain technology generally. Um, one of the things with my focus on impact and frontier markets, one of the things that I got excited about was the potential for blockchain um, to be used to kind of support land registry um, or supply chain tracing. So not specifically about the money transfer idea, but more about using the blockchain as the, the sort of ledger for kind of creating accountability, transparency, visibility, and so on. Um, do you have any projects that focus on that or are all your projects mostly focused on the financial side, the crypto side? So we have, in, so in our portfolio, we do invest in, we have a company who's working on land registry, although not from a blockchain angle. That's actually something, that's a, I think that's a really tough nut to crack, um, specifically with respect to how you incorporate blockchains. In fact, I would argue that it might not be an appropriate use case to use blockchains because the value add behind having a blockchain is around the decentralization piece, right? Anyone can read and write to this ledger and that way you can make sure that the data is trusted and it's immutable. Um, whereas land registry is often a very centralized process. It's a process that's owned by a government um, or a village or you know a district. And, and that's a database that only one entity has the rights to write on and everyone else hopefully has access to read to. So I think in those cases, it's arguable whether you'd actually want to bring in a blockchain. But this is something that I think is it's an evolving question and, uh, and something that you know we've been kicking around as well. Uh, supply chain side as well, I think the supply chain is one of the, like, a, a really good use case for blockchain technology. Um, we've got one portfolio company called Topple. They've been working on this, on this topic for quite some while. Um, I think the fundamental use case here is that you can take, you can go from a you know, a farmer in Ghana can uh, deliver their co their cocoa beans uh, at farm gate to the cooperative or to the harvester, and the harvester can uh, they can mutually uh, enter data that says you know here's the price that we paid, here's how many kilograms were shipped, uh, here's the date and all that right. You can mutually sign this transaction, and then all this data at every stage along the way it gets put on chain. It's, it becomes immutable. Anyone can of course. Um, 
validate it and 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 um and see this data transparently and then once it gets to the consumer the consumer can scan a qr code and is able to see okay okay this is actually fair trade coffee right it's not just something that we need to take somebody's word for it's actually uh proven out to be true and so i think this is like a really really prime use case and and we've um there i know there's at least a few of these projects that have been going on um there's one specifically in Ghana that we've been following along with uh, for smallholder farmers. 1,600 smallholder farmers have been involved. They've been uh, paid fairly and transparently. 200,000 euros have been flowing through this chain. And so, you know, I think this is an area where there's going to be, um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. And I think it's just a matter of, you know, how do you set up the incentives in the right way to get to get more people to buy in? Yeah, but just to pull back for a second, you know, we were talking about crypto. Obviously, your, a lot of your focus is on the use of crypto. Um, the crypto space and the digital asset space has gone through a bit of a seismic upheaval in the past year or so, almost exactly a year, really. Um, has that had any impact on attitudes towards the kind of projects that you're working on? Yeah, um, definitely. So our, our focus, of course, is in like the international development and social inclusion space. And so I think with this realm, um, there's a very wide spectrum of opinions when it comes to like the role of this technology, the potential of this technology. You have on one extreme, you have like techno enthusiasts who think that like new tech is going to save the day. It's going to like cure, cure world hunger and all these things. Um, maybe we scan everyone's eyeball, then everyone's going to be happy, right? And then on the other extreme, you've got like the cynics, and I mean cynics, not skeptics, right? Cynics who just refuse to see anything beyond FTX or Celsius or Luna, like anything like that, right? You say the word crypto and then they immediately go into a shell. Um, and I think there's there's this like there's this pretty big camp, and I think they're refusing to look at the underlying technology. For us, like you know, we are like we're keen on the potential and role of this tech, but we're not Pollyannas about this. We're skeptical, but we're open minded. And I think what's important is that we can focus on the impact for the end user. Right, start with the problem, start with the pain point, and then from there see if the tech actually is addressing a real pain point. Um, and so I think that's like, you know, I, I think you just have like such a spectrum here. And it's, of course, like it's going to require a lot of bridging to get across that. But I think one one area or maybe the the lever that we really think about pulling on is like once you can actually demonstrate use cases and start getting some proof points out there, that's the best way to convince some of these cynics. Right. You need to actually be able to demonstrate and say, like, yeah, look, like we actually have like like this technology does work in practice in the field. It's not theoretical. It actually has this use case that's working. And I think you're seeing that in like a, a wider variety here, right? So you've got like humanitarian aid use cases. So you can say like uh, like the most, um, the most core function of international NGOs now is cash transfers. Uh, since the grand bargain from a few years ago, the main thing that's happening is we're giving cash to people and letting cat people have the like the the autonomy to decide how they want to spend that money. Um, it's a nice change within the development world, and so you know, does it make sense to incorporate crypto to this? Right, crypto cash transfers as a form of aid. You have benefits, increased traceability. It's digitized. Um, you can bypass a lot of intermediaries, so there's lower costs. You know, there's there's there are there are a lot of benefits that can be accrued from doing this. Uh, I think this use case is picking up steam, right? The UNHCR deployed a, a solution in Ukraine just a few months ago, uh, targeting people on the move um, from the war in Ukraine. Uh, other NGOs like CARE, Give Directly, Hope for Haiti, Oxfam, they're all moving into the space. They're all doing things along these lines. So I think you're starting to see some traction uh, with this use case. And like from our experience, the key is really about finding a local country team that's 
willing to take a chance on new technologies. Right? These, these organizations, they're not monolithic. They do have individual champions at every country office. And, and these people are, they're the decision makers, they're difference makers in, in determining viability. So I think that's like one really, um, really clear use case. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, we definitely saw that in, in real time when Russia invaded Ukraine. And within a week, I think millions of dollars worth of crypto had been donated direct to the Ukrainian government to help them buy protective equipment. Um, I think by the end of that first week, they'd already started buying flak jackets and so on. Um, and you know, compared to how long it normally takes to mobilize aid in situations like that, uh, which can take many months and involve a huge amount of friction in terms of the uh, process of getting money to where it's needed, it really was quite astonishing. Yeah, um, I think the potential of uh, crypto for crowdfunding is, of course, like, like very prominent because, um, well, especially then, right? You had people with a lot of uh, surplus earnings from their crypto trading and their early investments. Um, and then it was just such a, a low friction way to send money. Uh, you just you just put your public key out there and then people can just put money into a wallet address. Um, it becomes a very low friction, a few barriers to actually making this happen. Yeah. Uh, and I think you're seeing that in in some other of these um, like crypto crowdfunding platforms. These, these protocols are able to... Um, have hundreds of millions of dollars locked on their protocol and it's going towards productive use cases, right? Like Goldfinch is, is, is funding uh, emerging market credit funds and helping to bring a lower cost of capital to startups who are you know, typically reliant on local banks. And now all of a sudden you've got a much higher, uh, a much wider pool of options available, which of course brings down the cost of capital and then makes uh, and then you can, of course, see those benefits flow down to the end users. Yeah, yeah. And the key being the sort of speed, frictionlessness, the accessibility. Um, so, so talking about that, obviously a key area that you focus on is financial inclusion. Um, can you talk about one or two projects that you have in the financial inclusion space? Yeah. Um, and so I think there are um, maybe two themes that are worth touching on. One is this idea of uh, real-world asset tokenization. I think this is starting to pick up steam, something that we've been working on for the past few years as well. Um, and so the idea here is, like, how do you bring transparency to uh, funding funding flows and to the, the assets themselves, right? And so um, we've got two examples that we've been working on. One is in Cameroon. And so the um, take, think of your normal government bond, right? Like the T-bill in the U.S., um, the government bond issued by the central banks of the central and western African states that govern Cameroon and some of the other some of the other countries in that region, uh, they issue government bonds that have a minimum denomination of around fifteen hundred dollars. It's a million. That's a million CFA. And currently, um, only licensed asset managers are allowed to buy those bonds, and those bonds cannot be fractionalized. Uh, or sorry, they can be fractionalized, but the technology hasn't existed to fractionalize them. Uh, we're supporting a, uh, a partner there called Ijara, and they're buying the bonds because they have the, the um, asset manager license, and they're fractionalizing them and putting them on chain so that there's a proof of the asset and someone can trace it back to them. So rather than paying $1,500 for a bond, which is, of course, unaffordable to many in Cameroon, now you can just pay $1.50 to buy a fractional bond. Uh, the benefit now is that you have access to a high-yielding savings product that is very low risk, uh, right? It's a, it's a government-backed bond. Um, so it's pretty much your risk-free rate. And 
And all of a sudden, this is available because of this technology, right? And it's put on chain so that as a user, you can actually see exactly what is underlying this bond. Um, and I think actually like this, so this is something that we've been working on for about a bit over a year. And interestingly, I would say is like what the, the analog is what's happening in the U.S. banking sector right now, right? Like you look at like what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, they bought a bunch of these bonds, these bunch of these assets, which became distressed. But as an as a depositor or as an investor in Silicon Valley Bank, you actually don't have transparency into what those assets are on the balance on the balance sheet, right? You get a once every quarter snapshot of what's happening um, with the with respect to the balance sheet there. Uh, but beyond that, you don't know the maturities, you don't know the yield rates. Here, if you're actually putting all this data on chain and making it transparent, um, it brings a certain level of uh, maturity to your banking sector, your financial sector that otherwise doesn't exist. And so I think that's one where uh, I think, <laughs> interestingly, is what's going to happen is that, you know, in the U.S. and in other supposed like, you know, developed countries, we're going to be following the example of some of these uh these other markets which are leapfrogging traditional systems. So how much money has been invested in Cameroonian bonds via this solution? Yeah, so it's so small. It's about uh, about $200,000 is I believe what we're currently at. It's only been live for a few months. And um, and so I think it's, it's the sort of thing that you need to build trust among users, right? They need to be comfortable depositing their money into this new product, into this new solution. Um, but I think the feedback that we've gotten from a lot of the users is that they've never had a, they've never had access to this before, right? Like historically, you're putting any excess savings that you have, you either keep it in cash under the mattress, or you might put it into like a community savings pool, like one of those Roscas. Um, but with those, you have no transparency. If somebody dips with your money, like you have no way to get back. And so, um, so now you're introducing a product that has transparency, more certainty, better returns. Uh, and it's digitized, and so you're bringing you're bringing a lot of benefits towards um, people who've otherwise been shut out from from uh, some of these uh, more advanced products. And, and what is the interface? How are people actually using this? It's through a mobile app. Um, so the mobile app is uh, run by Ichara, the the company that we're working with on this, and and so they've uh, they've got their own users. But you know, as a user, you you can connect your bank account or your mobile money account to the mobile app. And then use that as a way to to ramp into buying these products. Uh, and the way that it's presented to the user is it's just presented as a savings product, right? It's a savings product that says you're buying a fractional share of this government bond. Um, and and this is probably something that you know we can talk about later as well. But just around the whole idea of like the the DeFi mullet, right? The DeFi or the ReFi mullet or Web 2.5, whatever you want to be calling this, it's um, you don't like as a user, you don't need to know all the technical jargon that's happening behind the scenes, right? You just need to know that it's secure and that it's working. And so I think in this case, it's a good example of where it's like, you know, you're getting access to a savings product. And, and in terms of like the actual mechanics of that savings product, um, like you don't need to know the, the technical, um, like, I guess all the technical jargon that's happening behind the right. scenes. I mean, that's the same with TradFi, right? You know, if I make a money transfer on my exactly. phone, I don't really need to know where that money's going and how it's getting from one bank account to another. I just need to know that it ends up in the right place. Exactly, right? We don't need to know, like, what are the APIs or the SDKs that are embedded in this app? We know that like, we have some implicit faith in that. And I think that's that's where uh, Web3, DeFi, all that stuff needs to get to at some point, right? Where people can have faith in the institutions that run on. Well, that's where the, the FTX type situation causes problems because people are like, well, you know, I get the idea, I get the concept, I see you've got the technology, but if the institutions backing it are not reliable, then 
this money could disappear just as easily as the money under my mattress. And that's why it's such a shame because it just tarnishes all the good work that so many people are doing. And then yeah. uh, that guilt by association that happens, it's really unfortunate. We, we could do a whole other podcast on that. <laughs> <laughs> the impact of that. Um, but so you're working in a space where there is enthusiasm, there is um, there are new ideas, and you're actually deploying um, the technology to, to create real world impact. Um, you mentioned there was one other example of financial inclusion type example. Yeah, I'll move to another theme, but we've been working on something for um, insurance access for cro- uh, smallholder farmers. And so this has been using parametric crop insurance for farmers, uh, which is leveraging satellite data, smart contracts, data oracles, and just uh, moving data on chain so that it becomes a lot faster. And parametric means? Parametric meaning um, rather than having like a claims assessor, assessor go through and like measure damages that are that are. Uh, bespoke to you as a landowner. This is just to say if certain parameters are met, for example, um, the amount of rainfall that falls on your plot or the level of moisture in the soil or you know the number of rainy days in a month, if certain parameters are met, then the insurance policy will pay out. So it's a bit more objective and, and less subjectivity right. to it. Um, so the problem that's being addressed here is that in sub-Saharan Africa, only 3% of farmers are purchasing crop insurance. I compare that to like 90 plus percent in North America, Europe. Uh, the reason why the, pay, the the uptake rate is so low is because the payout values are typically quite low as a percentage of the uh, policy price. Um, there's a super slow claims process, talking like weeks, months, maybe years to actually get paid out if your policy is triggered. Um, and there's just like generally speaking, like minimal transparency into the claim status. And so generally speaking, like this product has not been well liked by farmers and for a good reason. Um, and so we um, last year, we funded the first at scale pilot of smart contract enabled parametric crop insurance. This reached over 20,000 farmers in Kenya It was a combination of rainfall satellite data, smart contracts, data Oracle integrated into M-Pesa and then just automating the entire insurance monitoring and payout process. Um, it, re- it resulted in 97% reduction in payout times. So going from like two months, a month and a half down to less than a day. And in fact, this is something that you could very easily automate um, like once once everyone feels comfortable in the process. Um, we could in, we increased the coverage amount by 27% because now you can automate a lot of the roles out, right? So rather than having someone checking this and that, you can, you can move that money towards actually increasing the attractiveness of the premiums or of the policies towards the farmers. Uh, and then over half the farmers reported having higher trust in insurance because of the, the transparency that came with having all this data on chain. So there was an SMS hotline where you could dial in a code and it would say, you know, here's the status of your policy, right? Um, it has not been activated or it is you're supposed to get paid out today or you know, you're not you don't qualify for a payment. So you could easily just query that. And of the queries that we received, over 70% were from women. And the reason, like from, from some qualitative uh, interviews that we were doing, um, the reason was that women really appreciated this product because rather than going and having a potential conflict with your insurance salesperson to say, you know, what's the status of my policy? This is a conflict-free way of getting that information, right? You just, it's, it's non um it's just you and your, your phone, right? You just type in a code and you can see what's the status of it. And so just having that trans transparency and having it in a digital manner uh, really increases trust and people's comfort with this product. Yeah. And the, the smart contract you mentioned, that's, that is a blockchain-based contract. So the, yeah, and the idea of the smart contract is that um, it's a sort of if, if, if this, then that 
situation where if something happens, the smart contract will just automatically do whatever it's supposed to do. So you're not reliant on the, the, the guy that's managing the insurance policy at your local village to make the payout. It's just going to happen. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like bringing in all these different data points and then saying like, yeah, if if this level of rainfall falls on this plot of land, then, you know, trigger this and then, then right. the, the sequence of events. And so do you have numbers from that on the take up of insurance, like how it compares to conventional insurance or is it still too early to say? It's still too early to say on specific numbers, but the partner that we worked with, it's a it's an insurance company called Acre Africa. Um, so based on the results of this pilot, they've committed to putting all parametric block or parametric insurance products on chain, and they're also planning to expand this beyond that little pilot region in Kenya. So they're gonna they're gonna be making this available to farmers across Kenya and into Tanzania and Rwanda as well. Uh, so hopefully we'll see much more uptake and, and this sort of product that's really um, increasing the quality and the accessibility of insurance. Yeah. So you've mentioned the um, Crypto for Good Fund. You, you're now, uh, you've now launched the second Crypto for Good Fund. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the fund and then what you've learned in the first fund that's, that's maybe helped shape how you develop the second fund? We have gotten much sharper around specific parameters and questions. So, for example, this year we've asked, we've highlighted five priority use cases for uh, crypto where we have done our homework and we feel like this is an area where um, where there's opportunity and potential for innovation in this space and so an area where we feel like has real impact potential and so that's access to credit for underbanked users that's nature-based solutions for climate resilience humanitarian aid delivery transparent supply chains and crypto enabled wallets for underserved users you know based off of a lot of the landscaping and analysis that we've done we felt like those are five areas where there is uh, not enough being done. Like there's a clear market need for it. And there's also like a really high impact potential if we can solve those things. We also, um, I think we've gotten a lot sharper in terms of the data that we're asking for, right? We're asking for very clear understanding of like the technology that they're running on and the use case that they're trying to solve. I think this is just helping us to be uh, more efficient with everyone's time and making sure that the, um, like the fund panel is able to best evaluate the proposals. Um, so based off of that, uh, we've, like I mentioned earlier, 180 applicants last year, 200 applicants this year, very heavy concentration in Africa. I think it's over about 60% were from Africa. And then the remaining 30, 35% were from Latin America and Southeast Asia, or South Southeast Asia. Um, generally speaking, I think this year, uh, I was impressed at the applicant quality. Uh, I think the ideas were much more baked this year than last year. Uh, the, the use cases were much more impactful as well. Uh, and I think, I mean, if I were to hypothesize, it might be that the the bear market has has washed away some of the riffraff and it's left behind the, some of the more more serious builders. Um, but that said, uh, our bar as an organization, I think, has also gotten higher, given this is the second time around. I think it takes more for us to say, um, like, oh, that's like a really interesting use case. I hadn't thought about that before. Um, what are, what are some think, of the use cases that stood out to you as perhaps either surprising, innovative, creative? So we haven't finalized the selection yet. Or we're still working through some of them. There's a use case that we're quite keen on, uh, which is actually in the humanitarian aid side. The, the premise of it, it's anticipatory cash transfers. And so if you think about any climate disaster, so for like uh, an example is like in Mozambique, there's always uh, cyclones, right? There's a cyclone season that's happening. And so what you could potentially do in these instances is that you could set up a pool of funds and when, once you have the advanced data analytics, the AI, that actually tells you, 
okay, this, it looks like a storm or a cyclone is imminent. You can trigger the payment, uh, a pre, a pre disaster payment to users so that they can receive the cash, uh, before disaster strikes and they can actually use that money, um, to shore up their household, to buy supplies, to move livestock, things like that. Like by doing, by, by doing anticipatory cash transfers, you are able to improve livelihoods and get a much higher ROI from the amount of money that's being spent and used from a humanitarian aid program. Of course, as we know, most humanitarian aid programs are uh, post-fact, right? Once something does happen, conflict, uh, climate, disaster, that's when you're actually going into this. But if you can, if you do this beforehand, combining smart contracts, combining AI, um, you're able to uh, dramatically increase people's outcomes. Uh, and I think what you would what you would want to be doing here, like the technologies that are involved, you have a mobile wallet um, that's able to accept you know, different currencies, um, uh, fiat cash, digital currency, mobile money, whatever it is. You have uh, advanced data analytics that can forecast climate disasters. You have smart contracts that can automatically trigger the deployment of funds. Um, you have programmatic digital currencies that can be programmed based off these smart contracts and sent in, and sent as needed on different rails. By doing this, you're, you're, you're enabling... Um, a much better response and a much more efficient response. And so this is an area, there's been uh, just, I think one or two applicants that are actually touching on this, which I think is like a, a really fascinating opportunity for the next the next generation of humanitarian aid. But I think this is a this is a great opportunity for uh, to, to leverage new tech to, to immediately address uh, a critical need. That is, that's phenomenal. Um, I'm actually getting quite excited just as you're describing it because not only do you have the benefit of, you know, preemptively helping people prepare for a disaster rather than recover from it, which is obviously, as you say, far more efficient and actually more likely to end in you know fewer lives lost, fewer dis- less destruction. You're also alerting them to the fact that this disaster is is about to happen. So you could you can also uh, I was thinking all the way down the chain. You know you've got people. You know they get a text message saying a storm is coming. Here's five dollars to um, help you prepare for it. They immediately think, well, I'm going to spend two dollars fifty of that buying food and supplies. Go to the local supermarket, and then they're talking to people in the supermarket. Everybody starts to hear that there's a storm coming, and they can prepare for it. And the the impact of that is, whew, I get chills thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Like if you if you take it as like almost it's like a UBI product, like a universal basic income product that's focused on climate disasters and. Um, and like what you were mentioning earlier, right? Like how much fundraising went into like the Ukraine crisis. Like what if you actually just had like a decentralized pool of capital that was available for any any climate disaster? And then like as the modeling, uh, as the modeling is able to forecast something, then hopefully you have enough of the right people with those digital wallets, which of course there's a recruitment and onboarding process that needs to happen. But then you can immediately just send those, like trigger the fund disbursement to those populations. Yeah. I think you're able to, it would just make things a lot more efficient. Yeah. The, uh, I can imagine the skeptics would have a field day with that, though. I mean, the, the number of things they could point out as, as potential problems. But uh, the underlying concept, if that gains traction, that would be really, really interesting. For sure. So, I mean, there's some really exciting stuff going on in this space, as we've just talked about. What, what would you say your hope for the future is? So I think, you know, probably like similar to how you feel about this as well, but um, a crypto market that's less frothy, less hype driven, if we could actually divert more of that funding towards impactful projects. I think the amount of VC funding that's gone towards Web3 over the past few years is like $90 billion. Uh, it's, it's a large amount of money, right? It's non-trivial. Uh, and I, you just hope that more of that can go towards actual like impactful projects. Like I hope that more crypto philanthropists and builders are committing their funds and their energy to responsible real world use cases rather than speculative nonsense. 
Just to put that in perspective, I've been looking into South Africa's efforts to transition to a carbon-free electricity system, and I understand it would take, coincidentally enough, about $90 billion for the country to transition from the current extremely carbon-intensive coal-based power system to a renewable-based carbon-neutral system. So you could do that for an entire country for the same amount that VCs have thrown at crypto. At Bored Apes. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and like, you know, I, I think one other thing that I would be keen on would be if like Web3 technology gets treated as a tech layer rather than a vertical. Like it's an improvement in existing tech. It doesn't need to exist as its own vertical. Um, and I think that's where I would love to see like some maturation there. I think there, of course, there need to be a lot of things that need to change, right? There needs to be a lot of unlocks in this, right? How do you have enough... How do you build sufficient ramps so that people can get in and out of crypto? Centralized exchanges are still the, the gateway in most places, despite all the negativity towards centralized exchanges. Uh, user education, the digital penetration. I mean, these are obvious, right? Like that's what everyone talks about. Like how do you build better user experiences? The current UX is pretty bad in Web3 for the most part, right? So how do you actually build better experiences? Um, regulatory clarity or sandboxes, right? Give an opportunity for the tech to actually play itself out and and like see what works. Obviously, we don't want uh, consumers being defrauded. So like there needs to be something in place, but having blanket bans on crypto just aren't constructive because you're not giving people an opportunity to actually test out what works and what the, like what the problems that can be solved by it are. But this is where, um, this is where the smaller emerging markets are really going to help push this forward. Just thinking about... Um, Sri Lanka, for example, I mean, they've got a, a government sponsored, central bank sponsored sandbox where they're exploring financial inclusion products in the Web3 space. And that's that they're far from alone in that. And so hopefully we'll see some of these projects and ideas um, and spaces develop, enable the development of really viable Web3 products that can then, as you said earlier on, can then leapfrog back to uh, the more developed markets. And hopefully we'll all be able to benefit from that. Yeah, exactly. Right. I think that like, this is like this is the hope. And I, I hope to see a lot of this stuff play out over the next few years. Great. All right. Well, I really appreciate your joining us. And, um, you know, as you can tell, I'm super excited about some of the insights that you've shared and some of the projects that you're working on. Um, wish you all the best of luck with that and can't wait to check in and find out how it's all going. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for the time. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the New Frontiers podcast from Frontier Markets News. I'd like to thank our guest, Ken Koo, the fintech and innovation lead at MercyCore Ventures, for joining us, and you, our listeners, for taking the time to tune in. If you want to learn more about the work MercyCore is doing, or about their funds focused on Web3 and crypto and all things blockchain, you can find it online. And if you want to learn more about what's happening in the world beyond the glare of global media, check out FrontierMarkets.co. And yes, that is .co, not .com. You can also sign up there for our weekly newsletter, which will land in your inbox every Saturday and provide you with a smorgasbord of the week's key news from smaller emerging markets. The music on this podcast is What's the Angle by Shane Ivers from silvermansound.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast and want us to be able to produce more of them, please share it with your friends, your colleagues, your families, your followers on social media, really anyone you can think of that would enjoy it. And make sure you subscribe to this pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear it. Send me an email at dan at frontiermarkets.co. And that's a wrap. Until next time.